Hello, coming to you from one of the burgeoning cities of board gaming, Omaha, Nebraska. Welcome to the Out of the Dust podcast. I'm your host, legendary Bryce Jurdy. An Out of the Dust board game is a game that gets played that you hadn't previously played in a year or more. In other words, it's been a while since you last played it. But why did the game get dusty? Why did you decide to dust it off? How does the game compare to how you remembered it? Are you likely to play it more often in the future? These are the questions that we're interested in examining on Out of the Dust. In case you're tuning in for the first time, I'm the moderator of the Out of the Dust Geek List on Board Game Geek. The Out of the Dust Geek List is one of the recurring monthly geek lists on the site, joining such other popular ones like Favorite New to Me of the Month, New to Me a Year Ago, and Games Only I Played. The main focus of this podcast is highlighting some of the Out of the Dust board games that I and other contributors to the Geek List have been playing. There are a few other short segments on this podcast as well, sometimes unrelated and sometimes tied in with an out-of-the-dust perspective. For the Out of the Dust segment this week, I'd like to talk about Rattlebones, a game I actually have quite a few lifetime plays logged of. But even games I like a lot can get dusty for no better reason than there are so many new games being released that call out for my attention. It's been one year, five months, and 29 days since my last play of Rattlebones, and my wife and I decided to bring it out of the dust to play with our sons recently when we overslept one Sunday morning and missed church. The four-year-old needed some guidance and help putting the new dice sides he acquired on, but had fun rolling them and choosing which monkey to move. The eight-year-old did really well, made all his own decisions, and wound up winning. If you can call meeting up with the creepy Mr. Rattlebones winning, of course. A victory condition that never ceases to amuse me. There's something about this game. It makes me happy every time I play it. I don't think it will get dusty again, but you never know what new acquisitions will steal our attention away from a family favorite. Let's see what one of the contributors to the Geek List brought out of the dust. Eric Brosius, username Eric Brosius, brought an obscure card game called Burn Rate out of the dust. He last played it 9 years, 6 months, and 14 days ago, and currently rates the game a 7 out of 10. He writes, Drone was in town for a few days for what we dubbed DroneCon. He was on his way to HeavyCon, and what's better to do on your way to a gaming con than have another gaming con? Ours was really informal, though. He loves playing new games, and I hadn't played this satirical game about running a dot-com company for far too long, so it was great to play it again. It's one of those games that you think of as silly fun at first, but eventually you come to realize that it's silly fun that's almost uncomfortably close to the real thing. It's a take-that game, which is normally not a genre I enjoy, but the satire is so good that I enjoy playing it from time to time. By that I mean every two or three years, not every ten years. Thanks for the contribution, Eric! I pride myself on being familiar with a lot of obscure games, but this is one even I have never heard of. Listeners may be interested in learning that the drone in question that Eric played with is none other than Drowin Dowman of Splatterfabe, which explains why he was on his way to a convention specializing in heavy board games. Some might think it's surprising that the designer of the Splatter lineup would play a casual card game like this, but I know from the games only I played monthly geek list that Drowin, as Eric mentioned, will play just about anything. He is usually able to add several games to the monthly Games Only I Played list, oftentimes some dead CCGs. He's sharing an interest of mine in exploring near-forgotten games like those.
Reaction segment time! A few days ago, I was reading about a board game coming out at Essen called Sentinels. This is a semi-cooperative game in which each player plays a member of a team of heroes trying to defeat an invading horde of space monsters. Players must cooperate to accomplish certain aspects of the game, but there will ultimately only be a single player who wins. When I saw the comic book style cover for the game and the bold comic style font of the title, and the title Sentinels itself, I naturally thought, oh, this is a board game version of Sentinels of the Multiverse. But after continuing to read the BGG News article about this game, I was stunned to realize, no, wait, this is actually a completely different product that just happens to be set in a similar theme, feature a similar cover art style, and has a similar title to another already popular comic book themed game. And therein lies the controversy. Sentinels is the first game from designer Eric Jumel, and far from the first game from publisher Ludonaut, a French-based company. Some gamers have accused Ludonaut of purposely taking advantage of an already existing IP to promote their new, unrelated game by using a similar name, art style, and theme. Some gamers give Ludonaut the benefit of a doubt, and don't suspect the company of any malicious intent, instead merely caution the company that they may want to change the name of their game to avoid confusion with an already existing game. Some gamers, like my wife, think only a careless blind fish head could possibly confuse these games, there is clearly enough distinction between the two products in question, and that Ludonaut is under no obligation to change anything. An industrious BGG user, Vic Digital, went to the effort of contacting Ludonaut and expressing some of the concerns and cautions outlined above. Ludonaut responded very quickly to his communications, noting the similarities between name and font style. They wrote, Not related, except their games using bold font, but not the same style. Sentinels will be a standalone game in a steampunk-based universe with unique mechanics. Art style is inspired by work of Scott Campbell lines. Only the name is similar, but we're only Sentinels. We're not co-op, and the font is totally not the same. That way you could say they're all similar to Marvel's. To his note about the similarities between cover art style, Ludonaut responded, To a not-trained eye it could feel the same, but not. You assume similarities for reasons we don't get. Yes, it's a bold font, but that is all, like many others. But we agree that Sentinels is part of the same name, like El Mundo, Mundo Ariana, or Nuevo Mundo. It's a common word. Another reply was made personally to the BGG news article from a different Ludonat representative, Anne Cecile, who gave further insight into their thought process. About the title Sentinels, we knew that Sentinels of the Multiverse exists. Although we have never played it, the first thing we do before choosing a name is to check on BGG database. Honestly, we did not think this could be a problem to anyone. With more than a thousand games releasing each year, it is very common to have games with names using the same words. Some examples, Small World, Dark World, World of Warcraft, New World, World of Tank, Hotel Tycoon, City Tycoon, Roller Coaster Tycoon, Legends of the Five Rings, Legend of Andor, Tricarian, Legends of Illusion, Blue Moon Legends. And then she listed several more examples like that. About the games themselves, the mechanisms are very different. Sentinels is not a cooperative game. There is no special abilities for the characters. Nobody in our team has ever played SOTM. We do not look for a controversy, and even less being accused of copycat. We just want to make our intentions clear and our publisher job well. BGG users were quick to point out the fallacy of her examples, pointing out that none of her examples had the issue of a similar title coupled with similar theme and art style, and that it was the combination of those three things that was the root of the controversy. I chimed in on the discussion at this point to point out that another problem with Anne's examples were that her examples all used common words, but that the word sentinel is a very distinct one, which is an important element to the controversy. We should also note that most fans of Sentinels of the Multiverse don't call the game by its full name in casual conversation. They call it Sentinels for short. 
which would certainly lead to confusion with another similarly themed and styled game that is called exactly that. But let's give credit to Ludonaut for responding to the controversy, weak as their response and justifications may be. So I definitely think Ludonaut should change the name of this game. They have an opportunity now before the game releases to erase any possibility of controversy. Otherwise, I think the controversy will grow when the game actually releases, and more people become aware of it. There's also a practical reason Ludonaut might want to change the name. When I type in Sentinels into the BGG search engine, I have to scroll through about 50 Sentinels of the Multiverse products before I reach their game at the bottom of the search results. What do you guys think? Should Ludonaut change the name of their game from Sentinels? Is this even a controversy at all? On the What Have I Been Playing segment this week, I'd like to talk about Altiplado, a game my friend Peter recently taught me, in which I then demoed last week at Spielbound, Omaha's board game cafe, and then played again later that same day with my friend Scott and his wife Melissa. A bag builder designed by Rainer Stockhauser, in many ways Altiplano improves technically upon the game it is said to be the sequel of, Orleans. The bag building feels more like deck building, and the spatial element of moving a guy to a spot before using the tokens to trigger an action makes for some interesting decision-making. I also like the theme of Altiplano more. All things considered, I like the game and have enjoyed each of my plays, but the game has the same flaw as Orleans. It lasts a little too long because of the way the end of the game is triggered. Stockhausen has quite a few designs under his belt, but with his two most popular as evidence, it appears that a problematic endgame is a weakness for him. Because it's difficult to control when exactly this happens, the game lacks tension because it drags on longer than it should. Instead of leaving players wanting more, and leaving them with the feeling of, I wish I had another turn, the game leaves players with the feeling of, I'm ready for this to end now, which is an undesirable sensation for a Euro game to evoke. I had the same feeling with Yokohama last year. A great game with cool mechanics, but which has a problematic endgame. So I still like to add Multiplano to my collection, but I'll wait for a deal to do so. Obscure Bryce Game Segment Time! This week I'm going to discuss one of my four-year-old son, Joseph's, favorite games, Go Teddy Go! A Ravensburger children's game designed by Ladislav Meris, who has a few other obscure titles under his belt. As the name implies, this is a teddy bear-themed game. Joseph loves teddy bears! He's a teddy bear fanatic! He likes teddy bears as much as I like dinosaurs. So obviously the theme is a big win for him. This is a roll-and-move game with a die that has six different colors on the side instead of numbers. Each player starts with one of their teddy bears on the board and rolls the die. If it's a color side, they can move one of their teddy bears on the board to the next space along the path with that color, or start a new bear on the board. Some of the spaces are marked as safe spots, and this is where each player tries to maneuver their teddy bears too. If a player rolls a teddy bear face, they can either advance one of their bears to the next safe spot along the path, or, and this is the interesting part, Shift the board. You see, the board is actually two boards stacked on top of each other with a little bit of overlap. When the board shifts, the bears on a safe spot fall through a hole in the bottom board, 
which represents the teddy bear finding his way back to the safety of his teddy bear den. Oh yeah, there's also a sound sensor that goes off each time the board shifts and plays a laughing teddy bear sound effect, which Joseph thinks is hilarious. Anyway, the player who gets all three of their teddy bears to safety first wins. There are a few interesting choices to make once a player has multiple bears on the board, and there's some genuine tension in the game as those teddy bears start falling into their den. It's a solid game, lots of fun for kids, and painless for adults as it's pretty quick. For some reason, when I log a play of this game, I usually get to add it to the games only I played list for whatever month I play it in. Which is most months, because Joseph likes it so much. Not to brag, but I have more logged plays of this game than anyone else in the entire world! In fact, a full 75% of all lifetime plays for the game are from myself. I know you guys are jealous. In all seriousness, Spielbound has a copy of this, and I see parents playing this with their kids from, from time to time. But they're not logging their plays. Parents, don't be ashamed to log your plays of children's games. This is an important genre of games that deserves to have valid stats kept, just like any other game. In the first several episodes of the podcast, I gave some insight into how I got into board gaming. With the discussion of the important gateway games that ushered me into the hobby last week, I feel like that segment has come to a natural conclusion. I think it will be fun to now transition into a new segment that I will call Important Moments in Bryce Board Gaming. And the first moment I'd like to highlight is the discovery that not all designer games are good ones. Now this is very obvious to me today, and is likely obvious to all my listeners as well. But when I first started off in the hobby, all I'd played were games that just happened to work really well for me, and that I enjoyed immensely. So I thought that all designer games would at least possess some redeeming quality of fun in them. Oh, how wrong I was, and how painful and amusing that lesson would be. As I was first really getting into the hobby, I would just pick up literally anything if the price were right. I remember going to my first Gen Con as an exclusive board gamer, done with collectible games and discovering my favorite part of the convention, the live auction. Over the years, as the convention has gotten bigger and bigger, it's become more and more difficult to get good deals at the live auction. But 10-15 years ago, deals were plentiful. Anything that started out at a buck that no one else bid on, I raised my bidder number to claim. Anything that looked even remotely interesting, I raised my bidder number to claim. I lucked into a few good deals and some interesting games this way, but mostly I came home that first year with a lot of garbage. Most infamously was a game called Pirate King. The first edition of this game, published by Temple Games, came in a ridiculously giant box, which totally suckered me into paying more than I should have at the live auction for it. It's a roll-and-move game, which is a mechanic I'm actually happy to acknowledge has been done cleverly in games from time to time. But this was not one of those times! The whole objective of this game was to travel to various islands and earn points by accomplishing some very tedious tasks. But getting to the islands was an exercise in unceasing frustration as the roll and move was further compounded by a very random wind dice that made even the direction of your movement uncertain. Oh man, did I loathe my one play of this game. Several years later, I managed to unload the game to some poor unsuspecting person at a local swap meet for ten bucks. The person I sold it to told me, Now, if you find yourself missing this game, don't hesitate to contact me and we'll get a play of it in together. I just smiled and nodded and thought to myself, that'll be the day. Now interestingly, this game has a second edition 
which supposedly fixes many of the problems of the first. And this is something that has held true for me throughout all of my board gaming experience. And if I have a really bad experience with the first edition of a game, and then a second edition comes out that supposedly makes it better, I just have no interest in playing that second edition, even if it is better, because I have such a negative impression of the game already from the first. So, kind of a bummer lesson, but an important one. One that made me think a little harder about what games I added to my collection. But it would take another lesson for me to refine my picks even more. That lesson would be to do some research first. The moral of a tragic story I will relate next week. Well, that will do it for episode 5. Thanks for joining me. Feel free to join the Out of the Dust podcast guild at BoardGameGeek.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at Out of the Dust BGG. Leave a comment at the guild. PM me on BGG under user handle Radagast14, or email me at radagast14 at centurylink.net. And join the Out of the Dust conversation yourself at our monthly geek list at BGG. All right, play me out, Ananda. (laughs) 